0: Almighty Heavenly Father, without the covering blood of Christ, I'm just a sinner standing here before you. Lord, I claim that blood. Uh, come on me with your righteousness. Send the Holy Spirit in this place now. Minister to your people. Amen. So our title is Birthright of the Born Again. So I started researching birthright and inheritance and... Uh, I apologize, but I got off into a few tangents in uh, Jewish history and Jewish lore, I think it is. I do have one section about the etymology of the name Esau, but I'll try to spare you the rest. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 25, Genesis chapter 25, if you want to turn there, you can keep your finger there. We're continuing our series this month uh, in Genesis, and uh, we're introduced in Genesis 25, verse 31 to Jacob and Esau. So as I researched for this sermon, I found quickly that the concept of birthright and inheritance has kind of changed pretty drastically since the time of Jacob and Esau. So when we think of, of birthright and inheritance in our culture, we kind of think of them a little differently, right? So birthright in Genesis was the rights afforded to the eldest, to be passed down, to take over the family name, to be the guy in charge, and, and entitled them to a larger portion of the inheritance. We had the birthright, and then we had the inheritance. In this sense, uh, the birthright was kind of the larger portion of the inheritance, the spiritual part of the blessing. So I personally don't dwell much on my physical inheritance, and the reason is because my parents uh, have given me something far more precious than physical things when they came to God. When they came to God, they gave me some inheritance that's far more precious than anything physical they could give me. I did have a good time joking with my siblings, though, staring over here at my brother, uh, joking with my siblings about uh, my parents' will. So what they willed us in our inheritance, part of of their will was to take care of us in the event of their untimely death. Our children, their children, would go to a family friend. And so we kept badgering them to update the will, update the will, because it it got a little strange that our inheritance, as we got older and became adults, if they died, we would go to... Our friends, their friends, we'd be adopted out as adults. So it kind of struck home to me that our society has really separated those ideas of birthright and inheritance. But in the time of Abraham, the birthright was a very large part of the inheritance. So I'm going to use that context today. Is everyone with me so far? Nod your head yes or no? We've got a few people over here. So I want to examine Jacob and Esau's view on their birthright and inheritance and compare it to our views on our spiritual birthright and the inheritance that we have today. So in the beginning of Genesis 25:27, we're introduced to a description of the growing Jacob and Esau. 25:27 so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac, their father is recorded as having favored Esau, and Rebecca favoring Jacob. I tried to let that point go. And in studying patriarchs and prophets in chapter 16, I discovered it's something I should touch on. When the Holy Spirit prompts your life to speak something, you should probably say it. So I read on Esau, about Esau and Jacob, and, and the favoritism that, sh- that was shown to them. Esau grew up loving self-gratification and centering all his interest in the present. He dwelled in the present. He was impatient of restraint and he delighted in the wild freedom of the chase and he early chose the life of a hunter. He was his father's favorite, the quiet peace-loving Isaac. The shepherd was attracted by the daring and the vigor of this elder son who fearlessly ranged over mountain and desert, returning home with game for his father and exciting accounts of his adventurous life. Jacob, thoughtful and diligent and caretaking, ever thinking more of the future than the present was content to dwell at home. He was occupied in the flocks and the tillage of the soil and his patient perseverance, thrift thrift, and foresight were valued by his mother. So his affections were deep and strong and added more to her happiness than did the boisterous and occasional kindness of Esau. To Rebecca, Jacob was a dearer son. My background, uh, why I came to the South from New York was uh, to go to school for psychology, which I did for a part of a degree I think my wife finished hers. And uh, my wife and I were were very interested in helping marriage and families succeed. We're very interested in that. And so it struck me the concept of favoritism in a family is something to be avoided. Parents showing favoritism can be the cause of much distress and grief. Um, As we look out there, one of you is the favorite son and one of you is not. (laughs) The favorite sons are saying, no, that seems just fine with me. And the younger sons, I'm the middle child, the middle child. Kind of know how that is. Uh, This favoritism though tends to be the outcropping of some unfulfilled need in the parents' character development. Too often I see parents that seek to console and fill something in their own lives uh, through their children. Example of this in my life, I know I've been guilty of this. I have my large son and tiny son. And uh, my large son has been, um, we've taught them from a young age to help around the house. And uh, the initial thinking is, this is great. I have my own little mini person that can do things that I don't feel like doing. In my house, my son has become, my large son has been, become very skilled at doing dishes. I hate dishes. If you ask my parents, my siblings, um, that is, I, I stood there over the sink for hours sometimes, waiting for it to soak. Uh, the, the younger, yeah, they're soaking the pot, you know, for three or four hours. Um, and I thought, hey, I now have this son who can do dishes. I never have to do them again, right? Is that what God designed in a parental relationship? A few people know that is not. <laughs> There's some parents that are changing their parenting tactics right now. Um, that is not what God designed in our parenting relationship. The whole goal of training our children to be correct, do correct and righteous adult behaviors is to have correct and righteous adults. Amen. We have correct and righteous adults. I still do wash my parents' dishes when I go visit them, but hopefully in between times, they're not just waiting for me to come back home and leaving the dishes stack up. So I don't mean to be tongue-in-cheek, but I look forward to giving my sons part of their inheritance, which is the ability to keep their own households and do their own dishes. So Jacob and Esau, did not grow up in isolation. This is, this is where I, I started studying some of the, the Jewish history. They didn't grow up in isolation of their inheritance. They didn't grow up in isolation or um, just... We tend to think of uh, what happened in the past as successive generations. So my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather did this or that. Um, in studying, if you look at the chronology without getting too much into it, they're probably more cognizant of their birthright inheritance uh, than we are today. So historically, and in their chronology, they would have been raised at the feet of their grandfather, Abraham. Uh, They were crossed over for about 13 to 15 years. I don't think there's anybody better equipped uh, to teach lessons of faith and trust in God, lessons of sacrifice, than Abraham and Isaac. Um, The generations after Shem would have been alive. Most of them would have been alive and accessible to Jacob and Esau, possibly accessible, so The long lifespans of Shem and Abraham gave the generations after them access to direct knowledge from those who lived the stories of faith. Uh, So in other words, the knowledge about what the birthright meant wasn't just a, it was passed down from generation to generation. They could go talk to the guy. They could talk to Abraham and say, when you were looking up at the stars, what did you feel? What did you think when God promised this? What does that mean to you now? Because you're looking at the generations that came after um, several weeks ago, we had the privilege of sitting and listening to the stories of Robert, not Roberto, Caballero. Uh, I grew up with a third-hand knowledge of things that happened in Cuba. We have a large population of Cubans in our congregation, and, uh, and I've learned more and more. But as I grew up in the history books, Cuba was a thing that happened over there, and I apologize for generations that are older than me, but I know that I'm doing this to the generations that are younger than me. Um, it was the Cuban Revolution was something that, that happened. There was an island, things happened over there. Speaking with Robert, not Roberto, it became very real. It's a, it's a real thing. It's not a distant thing that happened over there. It's a real a real experience about being detained. Robert told of his experiences in the revolution, being detained, being separated from his family, sneaking around at night. He told us of finding the Seventh-day Adventist message. And to his children's children, and now to us as listeners, that message is very real, very true, and it's a very personal message. It's become a part of our birthright and inheritance. Having that knowledge for him passed on of what communism means is a real and experiential part of their life. So Jacob had the knowledge of the birthright, spiritual blessings. He knew of the spiritual blessings. He learned them from his father, but he didn't have an experiential knowledge of the things of God. So as we read later in Genesis, he sought after and obtained the birthright blessing through trickery, which was definitely not God's plan for his life to obtain this birthright blessing through trickery. If he had an experiential knowledge of God, if Jacob had an experiential knowledge of God working in his character, he would have been able to trust his leading, where God was going to bless him and how he was going to bless him. That concept of experiencing God very, in a very real way in our lives is what makes him real in the lives of Christians. So J- Jacob, Jacob knew, good way to think of this, is Jacob well knew of the blessings that were given to Abraham. He could read them the same as we could. But did Jacob actually lie down on the same altar as Isaac? Have you ever thought about how, how you would tell that story to your children? My father took me up on a mountain. He said we were going to have a sacrifice. We had the sacrificial system already set up, and I knew what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to my father, but I trusted him. I trusted him. I knew what would happen. And as he laid down on the altar, he rose, the knife rose up, and God spoke to him. Okay? Imagine sitting at the feet of someone that had experienced that, getting that direct experiential knowledge of God. The difference in knowledge of God and experiencing him becomes kind of very, very real in that context. So do we as followers of Christ, do I as a follower of Christ have a knowledge of what my birthright is, of what my blessing is, my inheritance? Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to learn more about our birthright. Ephesians 1, verse 3. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasures, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In Him, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. So if you didn't have it before, you now have the knowledge about part of your inheritance. Jesus Christ himself has adopted us. He wants to give us redemption and forgiveness according to his riches. How much riches does Christ have? I couldn't, I couldn't find where, where there was a reference to that in Scripture. The best I could tell is limitless, limitless riches. So what did Jacob and Esau do with the knowledge of their birthright about what God had promised Abraham through Isaac? Let's learn a little bit more about them back in Genesis 25. Did I tell you to keep your finger there? Keep your finger in Genesis 25. <laughs> now I have. Genesis 25. Now Jacob, uh, this is verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew... And Esau came in from the field, for he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. Uh, studying that Jewish history led me to the etymology of Esau's name. Uh, it's usually translated as hairy. But I, I discovered that it's, it, it was translated several times and could also mean fullness or complete and uh, the concept is that Esau exists in the present tense. He has no commitment to past or future and he wants the freedom of the hunt, the ability to follow the scent wherever it takes him. Uh, He's emotional about his identity and primarily on the surface uh, he's skin deep. Esau's skin deep, his character, that's why it didn't take more than a skin covering to walk in and fool his father and take on the character of Esau for Jacob. Even the color the choice of the hebrew word edom red lends itself to naming esau after the color of the lentils which is a shallow comparison so i also found the jewish tradition kind of plays heavily on the idea that um, esau was a hunter after the spirit of nimrod so he's a good hunter I, I come from a family that hunts wild game and uh sometimes hours or days or months could be spent outside in the cold and miserable otherwise unpleasant conditions and uh I've heard many tales about the physicality of bringing a large animal in from a hunt in the field and leads itself to exhaustion and hunger. So whatever hunt Esau was on, it led him to return exhausted and weary and he entered into an area of discussion where he was up against temptation and he was willing to be careless with a birthright. So how about us? Do we ever experience that where we enter into an area where we're exhausted and we come up against temptation. So our best way participants, best way is in full swing, can testify, is it a good idea to have a great workout and then sit down next to a large bag of chips? Someone say, no, it's not a good idea. Okay, thank you, that's not a good idea. Uh, I experienced this in my life a few years ago. I did some work from McKee Foods, uh, which have some great granola bars <coughs> and other things. and. They gave me as a gift, they're testing a product called 100-calorie uh, Nutty Bars. And so if you're wondering, Nutty Bars about that long, and 100 calories of Nutty Bars is about that big. It's a one-by-one-inch square. So I went for a great three-mile jog. I felt great. I came back. I was pumped up, ready to go. And I sat down on the couch next to this huge case that they had given me of this nice, low-calorie, healthy snack. And you know what I learned entering into temptation? that 25, 100 calorie nutty bars is exactly the same as one 2,500 calorie nutty bar. Um, I also learned that placing myself in temptation's way, sitting there on my couch, unnecessarily was very presumptuous on my part. So God gave us tools to help avoid that temptation and avoid selling our birthright of a healthy body and mind. Nutrition, anybody with me, exercise, water, sunlight, temperance, air, rest, and trust. New start. So as Jacob and Esau made their transaction, I think about when we do the same. We do the same type of thing. Genesis twenty-five thirty-one, continuing. But Jacob said, came in from the field, Esau came in from the field. Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus, and here's the key, Esau despised his birthright. Patriarchs and Prophets, again in chapter 16, expounds that Isaac made known to his sons the privileges and conditions of accepting this birthright and inheritance. He plainly stated that Esau, as the eldest, was entitled to the birthright. But Esau had no love for devotion No love for the things of God. He had no inclination to a spiritual life or religious life. So the requirements that accompanied that spiritual birthright from his grandfather Abraham were unwelcome and even a hateful restraint to him. The law of God, which is the condition of the divine covenant with Abraham, was regarded by Esau as a yoke of bondage. Bent on self-indulgence, he desired nothing so much as liberty to do what he pleased. To him, power and riches, feasting and reveling, those were happiness. He gloried in the unrestrained freedom of his wild, roving life. So often do we see those things of God, our spiritual birthright, and the conditions put on them as a yoke of bondage. So to commune daily with God, I often find that the things that he brings to my mind are changes of character. I don't know if you've had that experience. God brings something to mind that uh, you see as a trial or trouble and you ask God, why am I going through this? And the answer is usually I'd like to work patience out in Josh. I'd like him to speak a little kinder to people. <clears throat> to give up a beloved food, a pattern of behavior, to give up a precious money. Seems like a wearisome burden, doesn't it? God has promised in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Oh wait while you turn there. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Learning patience. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Greek words translated as labor and heavy laden are present participle verbs. We're a homeschool family, so if you haven't got back in your English, uh, you're about to get an English lesson. Present participle means that it's something that's currently happening. So when you read heavy laden and labor, it's something that's constantly happening. It's happening now, and it's continuing. Someone that's always toiling. If you work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Toiling and working, this resonates for me because it seems like the struggle's always in front of me there's always there's always I've got to this point and there's still a struggle there in front of me it's constantly present but Jesus promised if we take if I take his yoke upon me we will find rest for your souls so Esau was aware of his birthright at the end of her passage though he despised it he may have even felt relief that he didn't have to go through the rituals and live up to the expectation of his father his grandfather And as the eldest of the family, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the life of the father of many nations. While Esau can serve as a, Esau selling his birthright can serve as a cautionary tale for us. It can also remind us to keep our birthright ever in front of us, present participle. Keep our birthright ever in front of us. So what of our birthright? Have we despised our redemption and forgiveness that was freely offered us in Ephesians? One way that we do that, one way I do that is through a speculative attitude toward the things of God. I've seen a growing movement in this area, this worries me, but it doesn't worry God, that there's a question to the nature of the Holy Spirit. It's just one of many things in our area, especially in the college area, um, that people are questioning and they're speculating on what will happen. I read an interesting quote in Ellen White, uh, about the nature of the Holy Spirit. So regarding a speculative attitude toward it, she said, the nature of the Holy Spirit is a mystery. Men cannot explain it because the Lord has not revealed it to them. Men having fanciful views may bring together passages of Scripture and put a human construction on them, but the acceptance of these views will not strengthen the church. Regarding such mysteries, which are too deep for a human understanding, silence is golden. Matters of Vital importance, though, have been plainly revealed in the word of God. These subjects are worthy of our deepest thought. We are not to search, though, into matters on which God has been silent. I found this interesting quote. Someone put forth the speculation that the redeemed will not have gray hair. And I got I to confess, I actually put more thought into that. After reading that, I, I hadn't to that point. But I put more thought into reading that. The redeemed will not have gray hair. How does that help the development of your Christian character in any way? How does that help you go back to Scripture and study the things of God that he has revealed to you? We just read in Ephesians, taking the yoke upon you because his burden is easy, his burden is light. Learn to do that first. Um, The pastor who baptized me, Steve Wall, I don't know if anyone is from, I think he retired out of Maryland Conference most recently, but Steve Wall used to say, when you've exhausted in your study, when you've exhausted all the things worthy of deep study in Scripture and you've allowed God to go, grow your character into what He's designed for you, then you can sit down and engage in speculation. So, <clears throat> me, of course, said it would take many, many lifetimes to accomplish all of that and begin to scratch out the plan for your inheritance, the plan of redemption and forgiveness. We'll spend ages studying that. Some of the fourth... Put forth the spe- speculation that the redeemed will not have gray hair. Other foolish suppositions have been put forward of those, as though those were matters of importance. May God help his people to think rationally. When questions arise, upon which, which we are uncertain, we should ask, what says the scripture? So if it will take so much time to understand our re- redemption and forgiveness, how do you keep that birthright idea ever in front of you? How do you keep it on the front of your mind? The good news is found in our scripture reading. I'll wait patiently while we turn to Psalms 16, 5, and 6 again. Was that an app? app opening up uh, Psalms 16, 5, and 6. When you're there, say amen, so I know that you've reached it. So our, our inheritance... Our birthright is redemption and salvation. How do we keep that birthright in front of us? Oh, Lord, you. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. We're to keep Christ, our inheritance, always with us. I've been married for 16 years, 8 months, and 3 days, and about 4 hours this morning. Still married, still married, as it's 16 years, eight months. God has certainly blessed my wife and I. And uh, I very much enjoyed uh, within a marriage context seeing all the different scriptural allusions uh, between the love of Christ and the church and the love of a husband and wife, um, seeing those played out in our lives. One thing that sticks with me is that strong connection in any marriage between communication and the bond. If you're married, you know the bond I'm talking about. Communication and the bond. You can almost graph the strength of uh, relationship with how often and the quality of that communication. Any married people can testify to that? Yes? Yes? Where's my wife? (laughs) Um, So the more you communicate, the more quality communication you have, the stronger that relationship, the deeper that relationship. I remember last month, last month, she reminded me, please take the trash down to the curb. If you've been to my house, it's about 900 feet away down a really steep hill. It's not a pleasant thing. And so naturally, I forgot about it. I do that. I forgot about the trash can. And so I was annoyed over the lack of communication, the missing component, of course, being that our trash is picked up weekly, not monthly. And and it's my house, too. Uh, We share the house, and so it's both of our parts to make it happen. And I was reminded how... Often we get annoyed at God for not communicating with us. Where is God? Where is God in all this? I can't remember to take the trash out myself. My wife needs to remind me to do it. Have I strengthened that part of my part of the relationship? Have I gone daily to God? Have I communicated with him with quality and quantity time? So when we've missed our daily communication with him, We miss some treasures. He has treasures untold waiting for us, and like my new daily written, pick up the trash reminder. (laughs) It's here. It's in writing (laughs) too. A reminder. Another way we can keep Christ in our life and in front of us is through daily family worship. I won't ask for a show of hands, but starting to strengthen that communication, that bond between God and your children or God and your family is crucial. It's crucial to having a a relationship with him keeping that inheritance in front of you so in our house we go we go through the Bible study lessons um, and we go through the my Bible first whatever the kids are studying in Sabbath school um, have you ever seen our children of our church up up here reciting scripture have you ever seen them up here it's uh, it's been a few months since we've recited I think James was the last one um, but the adults sit back and they marvel they say wow those children are amazing I wish I could do that were you one of those guilty adults that took my wife and I to memorize James 4, it took us the better part of a month and a half, and we didn't practice with our children, and just before we were getting ready to be done, we said, and to him who knows to do good, the end of James 4, him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is, to him it is, and my children simultaneously went, to him it is sin. They're like, where did you learn that? We've been listening to you for a month, Recite (laughs) it every day in the car on the way to school in the back. And, uh, and so we asked them, they, they were able to recite it. They didn't practice at all with us, if you saw them up front. Uh, they just listened to it over and over and over and over again. Um, I don't suggest you belabor the things of God with your children, but... Um, so, if you wish that you could memorize those things of God, you could recite scripture, I'm here to tell you, you can. So, how you do that is you incorporate a daily walk with God. If you don't have a personal devotion time yourself... Start one now. Wake up early, wake up early before you normally do. Get on your knees and talk to God. Talk to your friend, talk to him as a friend. Start searching the things about him that you would like to know and ask him the things that he would like to reveal to you about his character. It's that simple. Start that communication. We found with our family studies, uh, with our children memorizing the, the memory verses in Sabbath school, uh, if we try to, if we try to uh, load everything in on the first day, it doesn't stick, if that makes sense. We also, if we try the adult method, which is I'll cram my Sabbath school lesson on Friday or Sabbath morning on the way to church, that doesn't stick either. But what does work, I don't know if you can testify in your children, what does work is every morning we get up, we say a prayer, we read through our lesson study, and they say their memory verse once, just once. Uh, we have them recite our, our children every every family is unique but we have our children stand up so they can be a little less distracted because there's legos everywhere and i like to do this with my hands and we have them stand up and they put their hands behind their back and they recite it once and we read it and they say it that afternoon we do it again and by friday after doing it 10 to 12 times they've had a lot of sleep cycles they've had good rest they've had nutrition they're able to remember their memory verse all right, so I just gave you guys a nice pattern to follow in your personal study. I encourage you, I encourage you, grow your children, have that family devotion time, devote that time to it. It is worth it. The payoff of watching them communicate daily with God, it's just, it's just amazing. <clears throat> so keeping Christ ever before us as our inheritance has been greatly aided by keeping those precious words in our hearts and minds. And the final way we can keep Christ before us is by accepting the plan of salvation that he's laid out for us. Esau was aware of his birthright blessings. He knew what it meant, but he was also aware of the cost. He knew that it would cost him everything. He had to give up his short-sightedness and focus on things of eternal significance. It was a price that he was willing to be relieved of for temporary gain. We have that same access to the same blessings and birthright as Esau did. First Peter Chapter two, verse nine. I wait again patiently. Wait, you turn to first Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So to accept that royal priesthood, just like Esau, to accept that priesthood, you only have to give up those things of temporary gain. Giving up on the selfishness that plagues our relationships, of the desire to do it yourself, that I want to be in charge of my destiny, the desire to live a life of momentary comfort in exchange for an eternal reward. So I'd like to end with a glimpse into the future. This helped encourage me as I read through it in the great controversy. Getting the concept of eschewing our temporary desire for immediate gratification aside, we can start thinking about our eternal birthright, our eternal blessing, thinking forward. At the end, after all is said and done, and we as Adventists, I think we're in Daniel 7 or 8, adult study. I've, I'm up in juniors. We're slightly in a different place. We, we're, we're focused right now on the end. Everything leads to the end. But after the end, what, what comes after the end? There's a new beginning, yes. There's another beginning. It's a new beginning. And this is at that, that crux, at that point in history. Before entering the city of God, The Savior bestows upon his followers the emblems of victory and invests them with the insignia of their royal state. The glittering ranks are drawn up in the form of a hollow square around their king whose form rises in majesty high above saint and angel whose countenance beams upon them full of benignant love. Throughout the unnumbered hosts of the redeemed, every eye and every glance is fixed upon him. Every eye beholds his glory, whose visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of God. Upon the heads of the overcomers, Jesus, with his own right hand, places the crown of glory. For each there is a crown, bearing his new name, and the inscription, Holiness to the Lord. In every hand are placed the victor's palm and the shining harp. Then, as the commanding angels strike the note, every hand sweeps the harp strings with skillful touch, awakening sweet music. In rich, melodious, strange, rapture, unutterable, thrills every heart. And each voice is raised in grateful praise. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So keep Christ, your inheritance, before you. Keep that image before you. Keep him always on your mind. Commune with him daily. Study his plans for you. Talk with God. Ask him, what plans do you have for me today? Accept the birthright blessings that we have, a redemption, that being born again and plucked out of the fire. And accept God's forgiveness. It was God's plan to give you that forgiveness. It was our birthright, and it was bought at a high price. (laughs)